Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance and Jennifer. How are you both doing today? I'm doing very well, Tim. Thanks for asking. Glad to be back in the saddle here. And it's good to have you back in the saddle with us, Jen, as we tackle yet another case that on some levels feels like there was some justice served, but on other, there are other elements to this that are frustrating and you kind of see the same behavior from law enforcement when they're dealing with these types of sexual crimes. And then there's also the Saratoga Springs connection. So there's a lot of layers to this one. I'm really excited to get into it. Tim, no one's asked you how you are though. Do you feel left out? How are you? I, I kind of do actually. Thank you. I am doing well. Uh, I am excited to speak about this case, this person, and this research was brought to us by Marianne Stone White. So big shout out and thank you to Marianne for working on this, the case of John Regan. And uh, so this is a pretty interesting one that came across the desk and we're going to go over some of his crimes. Yeah, big thank you to Marianne. Have we called her Dr. Marianne yet? Because she is a PhD. Good question. I don't know. She was on the show. I thought we, yeah, I think we went over that there, but I'm not sure we addressed her directly as doctor. Yeah. I just want to make sure people know. (laughs) Good. Well, also now she has to be referred to as Dr. Stone White. Like that's a incredibly badass name. It really is. Research brought to us by Dr. Stone White. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And this research is a bit disturbing. And the episode deals with sexual assault, so please take care when listening. And we're going to get to this case very soon, Tim and Jen, but if people want to listen to our discussion about John Regan without any ads, where would they find this? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Missing Premium right there on Apple Podcasts. It's $4.99 a month. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, and our weekly bonus show, which everybody loves. And if you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product to there. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here, and we'll be right back to speak about John Regan. So first, we're going to go through the story of Donna Palumba. On September 10th, 1993, Donna suffered a violent attack. She writes, quote, I wish to share with you a series of events that have greatly impacted my life from September 1993 to the present day. The events will take you through the horror of a violent crime, a flawed and corrupt system, brilliant detective work, and the power of DNA. More importantly, it is a story of hope and perseverance and bears witness to the fact that good will ultimately triumph over evil, end quote. And that quote comes from Donna's website, janedonomore.org, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. There's a lot of interesting information in there and additional information in there. But to get to her attack, so on the evening of September 10th, 1993, Donna and her two children arrived home after attending a concert and getting some pizza. Donna's husband, John, for the first time in 12 years, was away in Colorado for a friend's wedding. That's crazy that they've been married for so long and he... This was the first time in 12 years that he had been away from home. And after the children went to bed and Donna also went to bed later that night, a masked man carrying a knife and a gun entered Donna's Waterbury, Connecticut home in the quiet overlook section of the city. 
Donna says she awoke to the sounds of footsteps, and before she could fully process what was happening, a shadowy figure loomed over her bed. And the following here is Donna's own words, the account of that attack. So this is a direct quote from Donna's website that we mentioned earlier. Quote, Before I could do anything, the intruder jumped me. A struggle ensued. I fought and screamed, and he quickly covered my mouth. I bit his gloved hand. He wrenched my arm behind my back and warned that if I didn't cooperate, I would get hurt. He took great precaution to conceal his identity by disguising his voice and putting a pillowcase over my head. He then proceeded to wrap nylons around my eyes and mouth and tied my hands behind my back. Helpless and acutely aware that my children were in the next room, I told myself not to scream. As the attack continued, the assailant used a knife to cut my clothing, sexually assaulted me, and threatened to kill me if I called the police. Trying to stay alive, I kept telling him that I couldn't identify him, that I would never tell anybody, that this was just between him and me, and that he really was a good person, and that he hadn't hurt me. Then I felt the barrel of a gun through the pillowcase on my mouth. It was as if my head was on fire and I saw my life flash before me. I had thoughts of my children finding me in the morning. He took the gun from my mouth and placed it to my temple. As I waited for him to pull the trigger, I thought aloud, Dear God, please absolve me of all my sins. Flipping me over again, he stuck the gun in my back and said, If you call the pigs, I'll come back and kill you. It was the first moment that I thought I might live. I heard him walk down the wood stairs and close the front door behind him. Then, silence. I momentarily lay there in complete shock, incredibly grateful to be alive, then wriggled free from the ties that bound my hands and ran hurriedly to each of my children's rooms. Amazingly, both were still sleeping soundly. I knelt down and sobbed. End quote. Wow, what a harrowing story. So terrifying. When you hear this, that she was alone for the first time in 12 years after her husband went to Colorado to a friend's wedding. What's your thoughts on that? Where did your head go? Like this person was watching for a while or knew that she would be alone? I mean, what are the odds, right? Yeah. No, that's exactly where my head went, that it was someone who knew that her husband wasn't going to be around. Or knew her. Sure. Had been introduced before, potentially. And when the incident was over, Donna tried to call the police, but realized the phone lines had been cut. She ran to a neighbor's home for help. The neighbor, a man named Cliff, dialed 911 and handed the phone to Donna. Cliff ran down to the basement and grabbed an axe and then went back to Donna's house to collect the children. And when authorities arrived, Donna described the crime scene, her home, as having been trampled on. People went up and down the stairs, in and out of the rooms, windows and doors were opened. A forensics team was never dispatched to process the house. No fingerprints or photographs were ever taken. The crime rocked the Overlook community and divided police. And at the time of the crime, some officers accused Palumba of lying and threatened to arrest her. So to provide a little bit of color to the events that happened right after the attack, after she had gone to her neighbor Cliff's home, according to her website, she had waited there until she couldn't take it anymore even though he had told her that she has to stay where she was. Like, he left with the axe to go check out the house, not knowing if the perpetrator was still in the house, knowing that this person has a a weapon as well. He takes his axe over there, and she, Donna, is in Cliff's house, 
goes into the kitchen and gets herself a knife and then heads over to her house. That's when she saw all of the people there going through it, what she was calling like trampling the house. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I can't even imagine the anxiety she must have been going through after watching your neighbor run out of his own house into your house, not knowing if that person's still there with a gun. Your children are in there. He's going in there with an axe out of the blue in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's completely harrowing. And I, I think uh, she had mentioned she stayed on the phone with 911 until officers arrived. And still after that point, she just like was still, I imagine, in a state of shock and was like, I, I got to go get my kids. Like, I don't know what's going on, even though it was against probably the orders of the 911 operator. They probably wouldn't want the victim uh, going back into a house where, where danger might exist, but just speaks to uh, Donna's fighting spirit and her care and concern and love for her children. Yeah. And it would ultimately take 11 years to find her attacker. But in the meantime, Donna was also taken in for questioning, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's unbelievable, but police took Donna into an interrogation room and actually Mirandized her and threatened to arrest her if she didn't recant her story. They thought she was lying. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, the majority of our listeners, know what to be Mirandized means. But for those who don't, that means you are you are informed of your rights, like your right to an attorney, your right to remain silent. Right. Like what what is that, though? Because they're not bringing any charges against her. Was that just like merely to intimidate her? Like, this is happening, lady. You better, you know, fess up. Sounds like it. It's kind of like bullying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What what train of thought was this? I don't know. Um, it seems like some officers believed that the evidence in the house didn't really align with Donna's story, but I don't really know the specifics of that or why they thought Donna was lying. Well, you know that Donna always waiting until her husband leaves for the first time in 12 years to come up with a remarkable story about being sexually assaulted in her home in the middle of the night. It's only a matter of time. Yeah, I mean, it just speaks to, you know, the state of things in the early 90s. Like if women came forward with stories of sexual assault, automatically they're not believed or like, oh, we got to get the other side of the story, which I mean, sure, I suppose it does happen. But like, I don't know, (laughs) to jump right from hearing that harrowing tale to you're lying is incredible to me. Well, thank goodness that that is not the case today in 2023. (laughs) hashtag me too (laughs) sarcasm there yeah a bit and in 2004 a man named john regan was arrested by police on an unlawful restraint charge for attempting to sexually assault a 21 year old female co-worker and police contacted donna and asked her if she knew this john regan and donna's husband john said that he had known regan since kindergarten he had even helped to reshingle the Palumba's garage roof a couple of years earlier. And soon after, a DNA match revealed that it was Regan who had attacked Donna back in 1993. And Donna writes the following after she found out that this was a DNA match. She says, quote, I began to tremble uncontrollably as emotion ran from shock to gratitude to betrayal to relief to sadness. After 11 years and with nothing to go on but DNA evidence... We knew who committed the crime. So I know that we do criticize law enforcement when we look at an investigation that has just clearly been mishandled. But it seems that to this point, other than the Miranda rights thing, at least they went out of their way to contact Donna. 
possibly seeing some sort of similarities in the 21-year-old case and Donna's attack. Yeah, if it was a hunch, um, good on them. Jeez. But the five-year statute of limitations apparently was up for rape. That had expired by the time Regan was arrested, so police could only charge him with the kidnapping in Connecticut. Five years is a statute of limitations on rape. I can't believe that you have a longer statute of limitations on kidnapping and not on rape. Yeah, very strange. There really probably shouldn't be any statute of limitations at all on that. Nope. And then one year later, while out on $350,000 bond for his crimes in Connecticut, Regan was arrested again, this time on October 31st, 2005, in Saratoga Springs, New York, when he tried to shove a then 17-year-old cross-country star into a van with a tarp, noose, syringe, shovel, sedatives, and photography equipment, all while inside her high school parking lot as she was leaving practice. Ugh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about those objects in his van. Like, thank God Lindsay got away. And this was Halloween, too. Yeah, like, that was going to be, like, ugh. of all the nights. Like, was that intentional? Was he, like, the boogeyman here? Probably. Yeah, I mean, that really speaks to, like, Regan wanting fear and terror out of his victims. Also, how did these people figure out a way to 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 raise $350,000 for their bond. Is it like a bondsman or something like a bonds agency that will put that up if you have the proper amount of collateral? Um I mean I think Regan's pretty well off. Um I know his wife uh, is an attorney, I believe. Uh so they may have just had the money. I don't know. I know nobody in my life. If I did, if I was like a repeat <laughs> offender, and I was like, I need three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Even if you put all the people I know together, they would never raise three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for me. They'd say you're you're in jail. Like need more rich friends, Lance. But don't you get some of the money back if you uh, if the person shows up to trial? So I, I think probably some of it was was done through a bail bondsman or, or bail service or something. Jeez, probably still such Maybe. a huge amount of money that i don't know we just see these criminals like getting out on bond for like a hundred thousand three hundred and fifty thousand like it's insane anyway thank goodness that she was able to fight as hard as she fought to get away from him yeah she bit kicked screamed and eventually broke free after regan grabbed her and her coach actually witnessed the attack and followed regan until the police arrived well done coach yeah and honestly like i really these moments are terrifying and and sickening but when you think about the perpetrator entering this moment thinking that he's going to have full power over the 17-year-old female and getting the surprise that he gets where he can't control it like i just like that moment i don't like that it's happened but you know what i mean i like that Someone can go into it because we always talk about people with, you know, it's a power it's a power thing with these people who abduct. And when they get the fight back so unexpected, it brings me just a, a little bit of joy. Mm-hmm. And police initially believed this was a random, isolated abduction attempt. But they soon learned that Regan was being investigated in at least three other states for unsolved rape and murder cases. This moment here is one of the ways we came across the name John Regan at all because we were searching Saratoga Springs for murderers or uh, anybody, any criminal who possibly used 
rope or something like that because of the work we've been doing on Sheila Shepard's Unsolved Murder from 1980 in Saratoga Springs, which by my math would put Regan at around 24 years old in 1980. I don't know where he was at that time, but certainly an interesting person to look at when you're talking about that case. Yeah, absolutely. I think I also came across Regan's name in research for our other project, Dark Valley, uh, concerning the Connecticut River Valley killings in the 80s. I think his name was floated around on some like web sleuth posts and stuff. I haven't found anything uh, solid connecting Regan to any of those crimes, uh, but I, I saw that he was in Saratoga Springs, and I know that you guys have done like a lot of work looking into the Sheila Shepard case and some of the details of um, Regan's crimes are, are similar to, to Sheila's murder, right? I mean, if you're taking into account everything up until the actual sexual assault, yeah. I mean, because while Sheila wasn't sexually assaulted, it is by all indications a sexually motivated crime that happened. She was tied up. She was naked. She was on her bed. And when I say tied up, it was her wrists and her ankles that were tied to the bedpost by her own clothing items and shoelaces and, and you know, like a, a robe sash, which is similar to Donna's attack with the nylons. Unfortunately, Sheila did not survive her attack. Do you guys know if uh, Chris Callahan is looking into this guy at all? I mentioned the name John Regan to Investigator Callahan um, in email uh, recently, but um, I, I didn't get a reply about it specifically. I, obviously, he's not going to give us any information, and I'm sure he's heard the name John Regan, so I'm sure they've looked at it uh, to some degree, for sure. Yeah, I sure would. And if you want to hear more about the unsolved murder of Sheila Shepard, you can scroll back in the missing feed to January and February of this year, where we released about eight episodes on the case and recently a ninth where we were kind of talking about the motivations of the unknown killer. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. But to get back to John Regan. So, the Waterbury police chief, his name is Neil O'Leary, uh, was quoted as saying, we'll know a lot more about John Regan in the months to come. But from what we understand, he led a very interesting double life. He led a life as a father, a devoted father, devoted to his kids, frequently seen at their sporting events, a nice house in a nice neighborhood, a very respected and well-liked wife. And, you know, obviously there was a total dark side to John Regan, end quote. You don't say, Chief O'Leary. I mean, I'm not going to criticize Chief O'Leary too much for his statement, but it does feel like he's kind of playing both sides there of the of the coin. I mean, devoted in one sense to his children and his wife, devoted to the point where he's wearing this mask that he's actually an insane person. And he's devoted to the facade. Yeah, I mean, this has come up a couple times when we talk about, um, you know, serial killers or you know people who've perpetrated horrific crimes. It's like, I don't think it should come as a shock any longer that people live uh, normal lives and then do this stuff at night or like lead double lives. I mean, people are complicated. You don't have to be all evil to do these things. And you get no credit for showing up to the kids' sporting events uh, if you're also raping and murdering people. So, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Cheering on your right. on your kids like and other people's, yeah. your neighbor's kids. But, you know, it just goes to show you the perception that people have, 
everyone, including law enforcement, about who the violent people are in this country. And, oh, it's mm-hmm. not the person in the in the nice home with the nice job and the nice car and goes to sporting events and has kids and a wife. It's always that person. <laughs> like, who else is it then? And it kind of goes to what you were saying, Jen. Like, when is it going to not be a surprise anymore that it's the person in the nice house with the family? Yeah, I don't know. And on November 3rd, 2005, happened to be Regan's 49th birthday, he unsuccessfully tried to hang himself in prison using bedsheets. And he did end up pleading guilty in New York State for the attempted abduction of Ferguson. And he was sentenced to 12 years in prison to be served concurrently with seven years for the 2004 co-worker assault and 15 years for the attack on Donna Palomba. And Palumba says the prosecutor back then, who has since passed away, promised that once Regan completed the 12 years in New York, he would serve those remaining three years he owed to the state of Connecticut at a correctional facility in Connecticut. But that's not what happened. So there's this old law called the statutory good time law, which allows... <laughs> I'm having a statutory good time right now. What an unfortunate name for that. <laughs> um <laughs> But this law allowed Regan to earn uh, around 1,400 days or just over four years off of his sentence for the attack on Donna in Connecticut. Donna said, quote, my adrenaline started racing. I couldn't even catch my breath. My heart was beating out of my chest. What do you mean? This is terribly wrong. This can't be possible. I can't imagine what Donna was going through when she learned that her attacker was yet again uh, free. I definitely want to talk about this statutory good time, old law. Mm -hmm. But I want to clear up the five-year passing of the statute of limitations on this crime. Is the reason why he was serving those sentences concurrently is because that five-year statute of limitations was up? I don't think it has anything to do with the... uh the rape charges, the statute of limit. I think it's just the name of the law. No, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not right. connecting it to that law. Oh. I'm actually going back to ask, how was he charged and serving time for the crime when the statute of limitations was up? Uh, they charged him with kidnapping, I believe. So whatever he did to Donna, aside from the sexual assault, he could have, there was no statute of limitations on? Apparently. Or it was a longer statute of limitations? Like breaking and entering? Yeah, I mean, it seemed it seems like kidnapping doesn't have a statute of limitations like rape does for some reason. I don't know about uh, the statute of limitations on kidnapping, but they definitely changed the law about sex abuse cases. So moving back into the statutory good time law that Connecticut had, the old law that Connecticut had, he earned over almost 1,500 days, over four mm-hmm. years off of his sentence. Yeah. And because of this statutory good time law, Reagan had fulfilled his Connecticut sentence as of August 21st, 2017. His New York sentence, on the other hand, was to be completed in late October of that same year. So Donna at the time said the following, it's just another punch in the gut. It's just re-victimization. I cannot imagine how a serial offender who's harming human beings with serious offenses could qualify for something called statutory good time. The name alone is nauseating, end quote. 
Yeah, that's a really weird one with a very unfortunate name. Uh, glad that that statutory good time law isn't really in play anymore. I gotta wonder why that was even like implemented in the first place. It's always it's everything's in place to like protect the innocent, right? I mean, that's how the whole justice system is supposed to work. You're innocent until proven guilty. So a lot of these things are in place to protect innocent people, but. Doesn't it seem like you're not innocent if something called the statutory good time law is in place for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like discourage uh, efforts to rehabilitate, you know, offenders or whatever. Uh, but we do know that the recidivism rate for adult uh, sex offenders is quite high. Um, I don't have the specific percentage on me right now, but like. I could see this applying to other like drug crimes, violent crimes, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, sex offense is kind of like a like a deeply embedded, maybe psychological issue. And Waterbury's former police chief and now mayor, mayor. Neil O'Leary, helped solve the crime that resulted in Regan's conviction. He explained that quote because that incident happened in 1993 in the statutory good time didn't come off the Connecticut law books until a year later, John Regan qualified so that the three years he was supposed to do in Connecticut, he built up enough statutory good time to nullify every minute. End quote. What a loophole. Yeah. Yeah. And O'Leary goes on to kind of comment on the recidivism. He said, quote, I don't believe John Regan is done yet. And I don't think it's right for anyone to give him an opportunity to do it again. This is a very dangerous man, end quote. Absolutely. And he can say these things now because he's the mayor. And I'm not making a joke. Like, he's not, the, he's not part of the police force anymore. So now he can say these critical things, probably from the heart, true things that, you know, the public wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, as far as the Connecticut Department of Corrections, there's nothing they could do. Quote, we legally cannot hold him any longer, end quote, said Department of Corrections spokesperson Karen Martucci. And Martucci admitted that they felt for Palumba, but there was nothing they could do. Quote, we're required to follow the law, which is once that sentence has been served, we no longer have that authority and we have to release the offender, end quote. And O'Leary is still the mayor of Waterbury today. Just look that oh, up. Oh, really? Yeah. So he must be doing a pretty decent job. The current state's attorney in Waterbury released a statement about Regan's case, saying John Regan was sentenced to a term of 15 years imprisonment in 2006. This sentence was ordered to run concurrent to a sentence he was serving in the state of New York. Several years ago, the Waterbury State's Attorney Office had lodged a detainer with New York authorities requesting that Regan be transferred to the custody of the Connecticut Department of Corrections when he was released from New York custody. After being informed that Regan was about to be released to New York parole, this office began the process of making arrangements to bring Regan back to the state of Connecticut. At this point, it was determined that due to the accrued time, Regan was actually scheduled to complete his Connecticut sentence on August 21st, 2017. These early release credits are established by Connecticut law. The statute must be applied and is calculated by the Department of Corrections. That's the official statement from the state's attorney in Waterbury. So a solid recap. And at the end of October, John Regan was set to be released into the custody of the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision Board of Parole and would likely transition into a halfway house in upstate New York. 
Now, obviously, it was unclear whether John Regan would return to Connecticut, but officials at the Department of Corrections in Connecticut stated that Regan would be required to register, obviously, as a sex offender and would have to do so for the rest of his life. And on October 26, 2017, just days before Regan's 12-year sentence was to expire, the Department of Corrections received a New York State Supreme Court order to keep the inmate in custody. Thank God. I'm assuming this is the Department of Corrections we've been speaking of in Connecticut, receiving a New York State Supreme Court order. Right. Wow. Yeah, because he's still held in Connecticut in at Connecticut. the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So apparently when inmates who are required to register as sex offenders upon release are 120 days away from the end of their criminal sentence, the state office of mental health and state attorney general's office are notified and then given the opportunity to arrange a psychiatric exam. The agencies then give a recommendation on whether the inmate requires civil management which could mean strict supervision and treatment in the community or confinement to a psychiatric facility. And Gary Greenberg, who worked with the state attorney general's office, said his office was bombarded with calls in the days leading up to Regan's scheduled release. The day before he was being released, Greenberg pressed the AG's office for an answer, writing in an email, quote, is he being released or what? The public is concerned and has a right to know, end quote. Yeah, I'll say. Good for you. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if if Donna had any hand in um kind of mobilizing people to call the AG's office. I would imagine. I would bet, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah she's done a healthy amount of advocating, and uh, you know, with her website and and I'm sure speaking engagements and more. Mm-hmm. But uh, well done in um, putting forth emails. I mean, that stuff works. Mm-hmm. I just I love how direct it is. Is he being released or what? <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So the news finally broke at 5 p.m. that day that Regan would not be set free. Greenberg said he was, quote, surprised they waited so long, but was very satisfied with the results. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the uh, 11th hour. Maybe they were just doing it to play like cat and mouse with Regan. Like, this will be good for the movie. Yeah, exactly. This is perfect for the movie. And Greenberg concluded by saying he's a very dangerous felon and the likes of him should never see the light of day. Agreed. And Donna Palumbo was put through hell, but her case helped change Connecticut law by eliminating the statute of limitations on sexual assaults that are later solved with DNA evidence. Her story even aired on an episode of Dateline NBC in 2007 when she, for the first time ever, revealed that she was a rape survivor. And Paloma founded Jane Doe No More, an organization for sexual assault survivors, and is sounding the alarm for Connecticut. She said, quote, this fuels me even more. I am not going away, and neither is Jane Doe No More, end quote. That is still bullshit. Stop it. Just remove the entire statute of limitations. Instead of the statute of limitations is removed if the crimes are later solved with DNA evidence. Do you know how much work you have to put in? We know this. How much work needs to be put into solving a case with DNA evidence? Like, at some point, that becomes, like, in some people's minds, maybe it wasn't even rape. You know? Like, how long Mm -hmm. does that have to happen before some people will start to think, like, well, maybe that wasn't rape. And I'm not trying to be crass about it, but this is such like a gray, like, it's a victory, but it's kind of a hollow victory in my eyes. Well, isn't that how the statute of limitations got into place in the first place? Like, 
like uh, by men. Yeah, yeah. So men could, yeah. So men could rape their wives and not be, uh, not suffer any repercussions. Not necessarily just their wives, but yeah. I mean, all women. Yeah, other people's wives too, <laughs> or just regular women without husbands. Sure. Um. Yeah. I. Yeah. I think the statute of limitations needs a lot of like revision uh, across this nation, but it's like on the note. Like DNA has become in people's minds like the only way to solve a crime. But if you outline the statute of limitations for rape cases in this way, you're eliminating every other avenue of investigation. You're eliminating a confession, a change of heart, uh, other evidence, testimony, you know, all those things. Right. Mm -hmm. Imagine this. Imagine if the 17-year-old potential abduction victim on Halloween by Regan was actually abducted and her coach didn't see anything and she wasn't able to fight this guy off. Like what, what's happening to her? Is she actually going to survive this? Is he going to let her go after he sexually assaults her? Yeah. My guess is she'd be missing today. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And even if she did survive, like who knows if he would have been prosecuted for that crime. Yep. A lot of potential butterfly effects didn't happen that I didn't really realize until we were going over it, the three of us together now. When you look at the research documents, you're reading them and you're trying to process them and you're looking up as much as you can that you don't know. But when you kind of talk it through, like there was so many things here that could have just gone the wrong way. And we wouldn't even be talking about John Regan because we wouldn't even know that this guy exists. But Mm -hmm. we would know that there's a missing 17-year-old. And detectives continued to look at other unsolved crimes in our reviewing Regan's business trips to Sturbridge, Massachusetts, to see whether or not he was in nearby Warren when the 16-year-old lifeguard Molly Bish disappeared on June 27th, 2000. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's a case we've talked about at length. And it's a pretty well-known case as well. It is. They um did name... A, a person of interest uh, who who was not John Regan. It was a guy named Frank Sumner, mm-hmm. uh, and that was news that that broke a couple of years ago. So I'm not sure. You know, I, I would say he's probably not responsible for Molly Bish, but definitely a likely suspect for other cases. And they want to revisit the unsolved murders of Mildred Alvarado and Karen Everett, two sex workers who were found strangled in Harwinton in 1988 and 89, and both women worked the streets less than a mile from Regan's home. Oh, jeez. This year marked the 25th anniversary of the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle. The Cold Case Analysis Center has focused their investigation on more people than just her family and friends. They say that they have, quote, widened the proverbial net to three strangers revolving around her case. Number one is a guy called the Nike Man, seen at the convenience store where Susie's ATM card was used the day after she was last seen. Two, they've discussed the life and crimes of serial killer Israel Keys and the various connections he has to Susie's case. And three, the last stranger they've narrowed in on is John Regan. Susie's hometown of Ballston Spa is just a short drive to Saratoga Springs, where Regan attempted to kidnap the high school student. And shout out to doctors Christina Lane and Chris Kunkel of the Cold Case Analysis Center, who we met and uh, did a panel with a couple years ago in Saratoga Springs. And we even met Suzanne Lyle's mom that evening. 
Um, and I believe we stayed in Ballston Spa during our trip to Saratoga Springs. So, yeah, we're pretty familiar with that area. So where is John Regan now? Well, John Regan finished his sentence in New York at the end of October in 2017 and is currently being held under New York's Sex Offender Civil Management Law. The Sex Offender Management and Treatment Act went into effect in New York State in 2007 to enhance public safety by providing for the civil management of serial sex offenders when their criminal sentence ends. just want to talk real briefly about that i don't i have mixed feelings about this it's like what system of checks and balances are in place to reincarcerate someone after they've already done their time as decided by a jury you know mm. but i also think that it's probably best for sex offenders in particular to remain under uh, the watchful eye of, you know, therapists and, um, you know, probation officers, maybe. I don't know. Definitely. Doesn't that feel like a huge undertaking? That's a lot. Yeah. A lot of sex offenders. There are. And I think there's a wide spectrum of sex crimes, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But there was a trial that was held in November of 2021, and a jury found that Regan has a mental abnormality relating to his sexual crimes and is likely to reoffend if he were to be released. In a written decision on November 28, 2022, the judge required Regan to be confined to a secure treatment facility in New York State where he can receive treatment. A mental abnormality. That's what oh, yeah, you, what? you don't say. <laughs> wow. They needed a trial. That's good, though. I'm glad yeah. that there's some kind of deliberation process on, you know, taking away someone's freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad we look at him and say this is someone who will likely reoffend instead of just saying, well, he served his time. There he goes right. out on the street again. Yeah, absolutely. And 20 states and the District of Columbia currently have laws permitting the civil commitment of sex offenders. And State Senator Len Suzio and State Rep. Dr. Bill Pettit are working to do more for victims like Donna Palamba. While the statutory good time law is gone, the state does have a program called Risk Reduction Earned Credit, where offenders can still earn some time off their sentences depending on the type of crime. Under the law, and depending on what level of an offender one is, convicts in the state of Connecticut can earn three, four, or five days each month as an earned credit off their total sentence. I don't not totally disagree with that. I, I think it's good to look individually yeah. at uh, each offender and because it's a totally different kind of motivation and I don't know, maybe psychological issues that um, propel someone to keep uh, recommitting the same type of crime. So it's like if you're in there for like grand larceny or something, it's not the same as a like habitual rapist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And depending on how much rehabilitation you go through and depending on the length of your sentence and depending on even if you qualify for this. It doesn't say you automatically are entered into this, right? This risk reduction earned credit program. Offenders can still qualify for it, I'm assuming. That you don't mm -hmm. just get it when you are admitted into prison. Yeah. I mean, it seems the the senator Suzio thinks kind of similarly. The senator said, quote, crimes like this shouldn't be eligible for any form of early release credits, which 
I agree with if we're talking about uh, serial rape and abduction. Uh, on the other hand, the state rep, uh, Dr. Petit, said, quote, too much emphasis on the criminals and not enough on victims. I think it's critical for the legislature and specifically the Judiciary Committee to make sure they get input on these changes and statutes. End Ooh. quote. Well done, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like John Regan is uh, being kept off the streets at this time. I hope that continues. And if it's possible for rehabilitation, I also wish for that. And for more information on Donna's nonprofit, Jane Doe No More, visit janedonomore.org. There's some resources on there if you are a sexual assault survivor or if you want to help Donna in her mission to alleviate this nationwide problem. 